Section 35 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maxim Babich from Desnogorsk. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the First. The Everlasting Presence of the Past. Man Reflects Man. Chapter 1. Lord Clancharlie. Part 1. There was in those days an old tradition. That tradition was Lord Linnae Clancharlie. Linnae Baron Clancharlie, a contemporary of Cromwell, was one of the peers of England, few in number, be it said, who accepted the Republic. The reason of his acceptance of it might indeed, for want of a better, be found in the fact that for the time being the Republic was triumphant. It was a matter of course that Lord Clancharlie should adhere to the Republic as long as the Republic had the upper hand. But after the close of the Revolution and the fall of the parliamentary government, Lord Clancharlie had persisted in his fidelity to it. It would have been easy for the noble patrician to re-enter the reconstituted upper house repentance being ever well received on restorations and charles the second being a kind prince enough to those who returned to their allegiance to him but lord clancharlie had failed to understand what was due to events while the nation overwhelmed with acclamation the king come to retake possession of england while unanimity was recording its verdict, while the people were bowing their salutation to the monarchy, while the dynasty was rising anew amidst a glorious and triumphant recantation, at the moment when the past was becoming the future and the future becoming the past, that nobleman remained refractory. He turned his head away from all that joy and voluntarily exiled himself. While he could have been a peer, he preferred being an outlaw. Years had thus passed away. He had grown old in his fidelity to the dead republic, and was therefore crowned with the ridicule which is the natural reward of such folly. He had retired into Switzerland, and dwelt in a sort of lofty ruin on the banks of the lake of Geneva. He had chosen his dwelling in the most rugged nook of the lake, between Chillon, where is the dungeon of Bonivard, and Vivay, where is Ludlow's tomb? The rugged Alps, filled with twilight, winds and clouds, were around him, and he lived there, hidden in the great shadows that fall from the mountains. He was rarely met by any passer-by. The man was out of his country, almost out of his century. At that time, to those who understood and were posted in the affairs of the period, no resistance to established things was justifiable. England was happy. A restoration is as the reconciliation of husband and wife. Prince and nation return to each other. No state can be more graceful or more pleasant. Great Britain beamed with joy. To have a king at all was a good deal, but furthermore the king was a charming one. Charles II was amiable, a man of pleasure, yet able to govern, and great, if not after the fashion of Louis XIV. He was essentially a gentleman. 
Charles II was admired by his subjects. He had made war in Hanover, for reasons best known to himself. At least no one else knew them. He had sold Dunkirk to France, a manoeuvre of state policy. The Whig peers, concerning whom Chamberlain says, the cursed republic infected with its stinking breath several of the high nobility, had had the good sense to bow to the inevitable, to conform to the times, and to resume their seats in the House of Lords. To do so, it sufficed that they should take the oath of allegiance to the king. When these facts were considered, the glorious reign, the excellent king, august princes given back by divine mercy to the people's love, when it was remembered that persons of such consideration as Monk, and later on Jeffreys, had rallied round the throne, that they had been properly rewarded for their loyalty and zeal by the most splendid appointments and the most lucrative offices, that Lord Clancharlie could not be ignorant of this, and that it only depended on himself to be seated by their side, glorious in his honours, that England had, thanks to her king, risen again to the summit of prosperity, that London was all banquets and carousals, that everybody was rich and enthusiastic, that the court was gallant, gay, and magnificent. If by chance, far from these splendors, in some melancholy, indescribable half-light, like nightfall, that old man, clad in the same garb as the common people, was observed pale, absent-minded, bent towards the grave, standing on the shore of the lake, scarce heeding the storm and the winter, walking as though at random, his eye fixed, his white hair tossed by the wind of the shadow, silent, pensive, solitary. Who could forbear to smile? It was the sketch of a madman. Thinking of Lord Clancharlie, of what he might have been and what he was, a smile was indulgent. Some laughed out aloud. Others could not restrain their anger. It is easy to understand that men of sense were much shocked by the insolence implied by his isolation. One extenuating circumstance. Lord Clancharlie had never had any brains. Everyone agreed on that point. Part 2 It is disagreeable to see one's fellows practice obstinacy. Imitations of Regulus are not popular and public opinion holds them in some derision. Stubborn people are like reproaches, and we have a right to laugh at them. Besides, to sum up, are these perversities, these rugged notches, virtues? Is there not in these excessive advertisements of self-abnegation and of honor a good deal of ostentation? It is all parade more than anything else. Why such exaggeration of solitude and exile? To carry nothing to extremes is the wise man's maxim. Be in opposition if you choose, blame if you will, but decently, and crying out all the while, Long live the king! The true virtue is common sense. What falls ought to fall, what succeeds ought to succeed. Providence acts advisedly. It crowns him who deserves the crown. Do you pretend to know better than providence? When matters are settled, when one rule has replaced another, when success is the scale in which truth and falsehood are weighed, in one side the catastrophe, in the other the triumph, then doubt is no longer possible. The honest man rallies to the winning side, and although it may happen to serve his fortune and his family, 
he does not allow himself to be influenced by that consideration, but thinking only of the public will, holds out his hand heartily to the conqueror. What would become of the state if no one consented to serve it? Would not everything come to a standstill? To keep his place is the duty of a good citizen. Learn to sacrifice your secret preferences. Appointments must be filled, and someone must necessarily sacrifice himself. To be faithful to public functions is true fidelity. The retirement of public officials would paralyze the state. What? Banish yourself? How weak? As an example. What vanity? As a defiance? What audacity? What do you set yourself up to be, I wonder? Learn that we are just as good as you. If we choose, we too could be intractable and untamable and do worse things than you. But we prefer to be sensible people, because I am a Trimalcion. You think that I could not be a Cato? What nonsense! Part 3 Never was a situation more clearly defined or more decisive than that of 1660. Never had a course of conduct been more plainly indicated to a well-ordered mind. England was out of Cromwell's grasp. Under the Republic many irregularities had been committed. British preponderance had been created. With the aid of the Thirty Years' War, Germany had been overcome. With the aid of the Fronde, France had been humiliated. With the aid of the Duke of Braganza, the power of Spain had been lessened. Cromwell had tamed Mazarin. In signing treaties, the protector of England wrote his name above that of the King of France. The United Provinces had been put under a fine of eight millions. Algiers and Tunis had been attacked. Jamaica conquered. Lisbon humbled. French rivalry encouraged in Barcelona and Mazaniello in Naples. Portugal had been made fast to England. The seas had been swept off Barbary pirates from Gibraltar to Crete. Maritime domination had been founded under two forms, victory and commerce. On the 10th of August, 1653, the man of 33 victories, the old admiral who called himself the sailor's grandfather, Martin Hepperts van Tromp, who had beaten the Spanish, had been destroyed by the English fleet. The Atlantic had been cleared of the Spanish navy, the Pacific of the Dutch, the Mediterranean of the Venetian, and by the patent of navigation England had taken possession of the sea coast of the world. By the ocean she commanded the world. At sea the Dutch flag humbly saluted the British flag. France, in the person of the ambassador Mancini, bent the knee to Oliver Cromwell, and Cromwell played with Calais and Dunkirk as with two shuttlecocks on a battle door. The continent had been taught to tremble. Peace had been dictated, war declared, the British ensign raised on every pinnacle. By itself, the protector's regiment of Ironsides weighed in the fears of Europe against an army. Cromwell used to say, I wish the Republic of England to be respected, as was respected the Republic of Rome. No longer were delusions held sacred. Speech was free, the press was free. 
In the public street men said what they listed. They printed what they pleased without control or censorship. The equilibrium of thrones had been destroyed. The whole order of European monarchy, in which the Stuarts formed a link, had been overturned. But at last England had emerged from this odious order of things, and had won its pardon. The indulgent Charles II had granted the declaration of Breda. He had conceded to England oblivion of the period in which the son of the Huntington Brewer placed his foot on the neck of Louis the Fourteenth. England said its mere culpa, and breathed again. The cup of joy was, as we have just said, full. Gibbets for the regicides adding to the universal delight. A restoration is a smile. But a few gibbets are not out of place, and satisfaction is due to the conscience of the public. To be good subjects was thenceforth the people's sole ambition. The spirit of lawlessness had been expelled. Royalty was reconstituted. Men had recovered from the follies of politics. They mocked at revolution. They jeered at the republic. And as to those times when such strange words as right, liberty, progress had been in the mouth, why, they laughed at such bombast. Admirable was the return to common sense. England had been in a dream. What joy to be quit of such errors! Was ever anything so mad? Where should we be if every one had his rights? Fancy every one's having a hand in the government. Can you imagine a city ruled by its citizens? Why, the citizens are the team, and the team cannot be driver. To put to the vote is to throw to the winds. Would you have states driven like clouds? Disorder cannot build up order. With chaos for an architect, the edifice would be a babel. And, besides, what tyranny is this pretended liberty? As for me, I wish to enjoy myself, not to govern. It is a bore to have to vote. I want to dance. A prince is a providence and takes care of us all. Truly the king is generous to take so much trouble for our sakes. Besides, he is to the manner born. He knows what it is. It's his business. Peace, war, legislation, finance. What have the people to do with such things? Of course the people have to pay. Of course the people have to serve. But that should suffice them. They have a place in policy. From them come two essential things, the army and the budget. To be liable to contribute, and to be liable to serve, is not that enough? What more should they want? They are the military and the financial arm. A magnificent role. The king reigns for them, and they must reward him accordingly. Taxation and the civil list are the salaries paid by the peoples and earned by the prince. The people give their blood and their money, in return for which they are led. To wish to lead themselves, what an absurd idea! They require a guide. Being ignorant, they are blind. Has not the blind man his dog? Only the people have a lion, the king, who consents to act the dog. How kind of him! But why are the people ignorant? Because it is good for them. Ignorance is the guardian of virtue. Where there is no perspective, there is no ambition. 
The ignorant man is in useful darkness, which, suppressing sight, suppresses covetousness, whence innocence. He who reads, thinks, who thinks, reasons, but not to reason, is duty, and happiness as well. These truths are incontestable. Society is based on them. Thus had sound social doctrines been re-established in England. Thus had the nation been reinstated. At the same time, a correct taste in literature was reviving. Shakespeare was despised. Dryden admired. Dryden is the greatest poet of England and of the century, said Atterbury, the translator of Achitophel. It was about the time when M. Hewitt, Bishop of Avranche, wrote to Somais, who had done the author of Paradise Lost the honor to refute and abuse him. How can you trouble yourself about so mean a thing as that Milton? Everything was falling into its proper place. Dryden above, Shakespeare below, Charles II on the throne, Cromwell on the gibbet. England was raising herself out of the shame and the excesses of the past. It is a great happiness for nations to be led back by monarchy to good order in the state and good taste in letters. That such benefits should be misunderstood is difficult to believe. To turn the cold shoulder to Charles II, to reward with ingratitude the magnanimity which he displayed in ascending the throne, was not such conduct abominable. Lord Linnae Glanshirley had inflicted this vexation upon honest men. To sulk at his country's happiness, alack, what aberration! We know that in 1650 Parliament had drawn up this form of declaration. I promise to remain faithful to the Republic, without king, sovereign or lord. Under pretext of having taken this monstrous oath, Lord Clancharlie was living out of the kingdom, and, in the face of the general joy, thought that he had the right to be sad. He had a morose esteem for that which was no more, and was absurdly attached to things which had been. To excuse him was impossible. The kindest hearted abandoned him. His friends had long done him the honor to believe that he had entered the republican ranks only to observe the more closely the flaws in the republican armor, and to smite it the more surely, when the day should come, for the sacred cause of the king. These lurkings in ambush for the convenient hour to strike the enemy a death blow in the back are attributes to loyalty. Such a line of conduct had been expected of Lord Clancharlie, so strong was the wish to judge him favorably. But, in the face of his strange persistence in republicanism, people were obliged to lower their estimate. Evidently, Lord Clancharlie was confirmed in his convictions, that is to say, an idiot. The explanation, given by the indulgent, wavered between puerile stubbornness and senile obstinacy. The severe and the just went further. They blighted the name of the renegade. Folly has its rights, but it has also its limits. A man may be a brute, but he has no right to be a rebel. And, after all, what was this Lord Clancharlie? A deserter. He had fled his camp, the aristocracy, for that of the enemy, the people. This faithful man was a traitor. It is true that he was a traitor to the stronger and faithful to the weaker. It is true that the camp repudiated by him was the conquering camp, and the camp adopted by him the conquered. It is true that by his treason he lost everything, 
his political privileges and his domestic hearth, his title and his country. He gained nothing but ridicule. He attained no benefit but exile. But what does all this prove? That he was a fool, granted. Plainly, a dupe and traitor in one. Let a man be as great a fool as he likes, so that he does not set a bad example. Fools need only be civil, and in consideration thereof they may aim at being the basis of monarchies. The narrowness of Glenshirley's mind was incomprehensible. His eyes were still dazzled by the phantasmagoria of the revolution. He had allowed himself to be taken in by the republic, yes, and cast out. He was an affront to his country. The attitude he assumed was downright felony. Absence was an insult. He held aloof from the public joy as from the plague. In his voluntary banishment he found some indescribable refuge from the national rejoicing. He treated loyalty as a contagion. Over the widespread gladness at the revival of the monarchy, denounced by him as a lazaretto, he was the black flag. What? Could he look thus askance at order reconstituted, a nation exalted, and a religion restored? Over such serenity, why cast his shadow? Take umbrage at England's contentment. Must he be the one blot in the clear blue sky? Be as a threat. Protest against the nation's will. Refuse his yes to the universal consent. It would be disgusting if it were not the part of a fool. Clan Shirley could not have taken into account the fact that it did not matter if one had taken the wrong turn with Cromwell, as long as one found one's way back into the right path with Monk. Take Monk's case. He commands the Republican army. Charles II, having been informed of his honesty, writes to him. Monk, who combines virtue with tact, dissimulates at first, then, suddenly at the head of his troops, dissolves the rebel parliament and re-establishes the king on the throne. Monk is created Duke of Albemarle, has the honor of having saved society, becomes very rich, sheds a glory over his own time, is created Knight of the Garter, and has the prospect of being buried in Westminster Abbey. Such glory is the reward of British fidelity. Lord Clancharlie could never rise to a sense of duty thus carried out. He had the infatuation and obstinacy of an exile. He contented himself with hollow phrases. He was tongue-tied by pride. The words conscience and dignity are but words, after all. One must penetrate to the depths. These depths Lord Clancharlie had not reached. His eye was single, and before committing an act he wished to observe it so closely as to be able to judge it by more senses than one. Hence arose absurd disgust to the facts examined. No man can be a statesman who gives way to such overstained delicacy. Excess of conscientiousness degenerates into infirmity. Scruple is one-handed when a scepter is to be seized, and a eunuch when fortune is to be wedded. Distrust scruples. They drag you too far. Unreasonable fidelity is like a ladder leading into a cavern. One step down, another, then another, and there you are in the dark. The clever reascend. Fools remain in it. Conscience must not be allowed to practice such austerity. 
If it be, it will fall until, from transition to transition, it at length reaches the deep gloom of political prudery. Then one is lost. Thus it was with Lord Clancharley. Principles terminate in a precipice. He was walking, his hands behind him, along the shores of the Lake of Geneva. A fine way of getting on. In London they sometimes spoke of the exile. He was accused before the tribunal of public opinion. They pleaded for and against him. The cause having been heard, he was acquitted on the ground of stupidity. Many zealous friends of the former republic had given their adherence to the Stuarts. For this they deserved praise. They naturally calumniated him a little. The obstinate are repulsive to the compliant. Men of sense, in favor and good places at court, weary of his disagreeable attitude, took pleasure in saying, if he has not rallied to the throne, it is because he has not been sufficiently paid, etc. He wanted the chancellorship which the king has given to Hyde. One of his old friends went so far as to whisper, He told me so himself. Remote as was the solitude of Linnae Clancharley, something of this talk would reach him through the outlaws he met, such as old regicides like Andrew Brafton, who lived at Lausanne. Clancharley confined himself to an imperceptible shrug of the shoulders, a sign of profound deterioration. On one occasion he added to the shrug these few words, murmured in a low voice, I pity those who believe such things. Part 4 Charles II, good man, despised him. The happiness of England under Charles II was more than happiness. It was enchantment. A restoration is like an old oil painting, blackened by time and revarnished. All the past reappeared. Good old manners returned. Beautiful women reigned and governed. Evelyn notices it. We read in his journal, Luxury, profaneness, contempt of God. I saw the king on Sunday evening with his courtesans, Portsmouth, Cleveland, Mazarin, and two or three others, all nearly naked, in the gaming room. We feel that there is ill-nature in this description, for Evelyn was a grumbling Puritan, tainted with Republican reveries. He did not appreciate the profitable example given by kings in those grand Babylonian gaieties, which, after all, maintain luxury. He did not understand the utility of voice. Here is a maxim. Do not extirpate vice if you want to have charming women. If you do, you are like idiots who destroy the chrysalis whilst they delight in the butterfly. Charles II, as we have said, scarcely remembered that a rebel called Clancharlie existed. But James II was more heedful. Charles II governed gently, it was his way, we may add, that he did not govern the worse on that account. A sailor sometimes makes on a rope intended to baffle the wind a slack knot which he leaves to the wind to tighten. Such is the stupidity of the storm and of the people. The slack knot very soon becomes a tight one. So did the government of Charles II. Under James II the throttling began a necessary throttling of what remained of the revolution. James II had a laudable ambition to be an efficient king. 
The reign of Charles II was, in his opinion, but a sketch of restoration. James wished for a still more complete return to order. He had, in 1660, deplored that they had confined themselves to the hanging of ten regicides. He was a more genuine reconstructor of authority. He infused vigor into serious principles. He installed true justice, which is superior to sentimental declamations, and attends, above all things, to the interests of society. In his protecting severities we recognize the father of the state. He entrusted the hand of justice to Jeffreys, and its sword to Kirk. That useful colonel one day hung and rehung the same man, a republican, asking him each time, Will you renounce the republic? The villain, having each time said no, was dispatched. I hanged him four times, said Kirk, with satisfaction. The renewal of executions is a great sign of power in the executive authority. Lady Lyle, who, though she had sent her son to fight against Monmouth, had concealed two rebels in her house, was executed. Another rebel, having been honorable enough to declare that an Anabaptist female had given him shelter, was pardoned, and the woman was burned alive. Kirk, on another occasion, gave a town to understand that he knew his principles to be republican, by hanging nineteen burgesses. These reprisals were certainly legitimate, for it must be remembered that under Cromwell they cut off the noses and ears of the stone saints in the churches. James II, who had had the sense to choose Jeffreys and Kirk, was a prince imbued with true religion. He practiced mortification in the ugliness of his mistresses. He listened to Le Pierre Le Combier, a preacher almost as unctuous as Le Pierre Chimney, but with more fire, who had the glory of being, during the first part of his life, the counselor of James II, and during the latter, the inspirer of Mary Alcock. It was thanks to this strong religious nourishment that later on James II was enabled to bear exile with dignity and to exhibit, in his retirement at St. Germain, the spectacle of a king rising superior to adversity, calmly touching for king's evil and conversing with Jesuits. It will be readily understood that such a king would trouble himself to a certain extent about such a rebel as Lord Linnae Clancharlie. Hereditary peerages have a certain hold on the future, and it was evident that if any precautions were necessary with regard to that lord, James the Second was not the man to hesitate. End of section thirty-five of *The Man Who Laughs* by Victor Hugo.